As Josh said, I'm Adam. Adam Zapp, one of the one of the pastors here at the Ring, and uh, just really excited to be up here and to be here here with you tonight at all. So, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter six. We're going to look at verses five through fifteen. So, this chapter is probably most famous for for housing the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's for good reason. Uh, that's going to be one of our focuses tonight is the Lord's Prayer and prayer kind of more broadly, but not as broadly as we can be because prayer is a, a huge subject um, and I couldn't hope to cover it comprehensively. But um, we're just going to look at verses 5 through 15 and kind of see what uh, Jesus has for us regarding prayer. So before I read it, um, I want to give a little context Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a a discourse, a long discourse that Jesus gives fairly early in his his ministry. Uh, in, In a nutshell, what he's talking about is what is kingdom life like for disciples? What's life going to be like? Or what can life be like now in the kingdom of God for people who believe in Jesus? And one of the primary ways that he contrasts kingdom life from uh, life as they knew it at the time is he focuses on actions versus intent. So earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus saying things like, uh, don't murder, but also don't act from a heart of anger toward your fellow man. And don't commit adultery, but don't act from a spirit of, of lust to anyone. So he's taking the action and revealing the intent. And he's saying this to a culture that has, um, for a long time, allowed the action, the actions that they were taking to be um, the primary indicator of what they really wanted. But it's really about the intent. So that's what Jesus is doing uh, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. So in chapter 6, we find him beginning to talk about worship practices, action versus intent there. Um, We see him talk about three worship practices, the first being giving to the needy, the second being prayer, and the third being fasting. So we're just going to focus on prayer, and that's verses 5 through 15. So I'll go ahead and read that over us. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So there's a lot there, a lot that we can learn about prayer from, from these verses. I think it's important to uh, recognize and kind of break this down into two large sections. The first being verses 5 through 8, where Jesus gives us two lessons about how prayer works in the kingdom. So that's verses 5 through 8. Verses 9 through 15 is his presentation of the Lord's Prayer, where he gives us a model prayer for his disciples. So we're going to walk through each of those sections. And, and as we do that, I want us to keep in mind, um, you know, Jesus says the word Father here a lot. And I think that's very important. Um, when we go to the Lord in prayer, and this is going to be one of our main, main images tonight and main points, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are a trusting child, and we're going to our Father who loves us unconditionally, and He is perfect, and He loves us perfectly. All that sort of thing. So we have to see ourselves in that image when we go to him in prayer. So I want us to keep that in mind as we talk through that. And we'll see it pop up. So that's how kingdom prayer works. Uh, The first lesson in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5 he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So immediately, uh, Jesus calls these people hypocrites. These are people that are pretending to do one thing, but they're actually doing another. They're faking some morality. And what they're doing is praying. But he immediately, um, he immediately recognizes their intent. And he says, They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners. That's what they're doing. That's their action, which in of of itself isn't really a problem necessarily. But he goes to their intent, and he says that they may be seen by others. And that's where the problem lies. So their intent is to be recognized by men. Their intent in praying publicly is to make a great display of their prayer for it to put on a show to help their reputation, all that sort of thing. They're using God as a means to get something else. Their reputation is more important than simple communion with the Lord. So in verse 6, he gives us a counter-approach. He says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, Jesus is talking about a place to pray. Now, why would he say that? Uh, Well, we have to apply the same action versus intent theme here. And he's talking about the intent of the heart. In a secret place, in a private place where we meet the Lord, we're able to focus on God and shut out the world. And he mentions a place because for the worshiper that is sincere about meeting with the Lord, a secret place will be their most natural 
longing. That's where they want to go. It cuts out all the temptation to put on a show for the world, and we can focus on the Lord. So that, that is Jesus' aim here. He's saying kingdom prayer works in such a way that all you need is to meet with the Lord. You don't need to bring in other people. You don't need their validation. You don't need their recognition. So some takeaways that we can, we can get from these two verses immediately are that we should examine our, our intent when we practice public spirituality. Uh, temptations to this kind of thing are, are very prevalent, I would say, and though we don't have uh, the Jewish prayer practices and church culture that they did, uh, we don't find ourselves in the middle of the streets uh, putting on a show with our prayer, I don't think. Um, but we should still examine all of our intents when we practice public spirituality. And I, I think one peculiar thing about our culture is social media. Social media can, play, can be a place where we're tempted uh, to get people's validation and recognition with our public spirituality. So if we are um, validated by how many favorites or retweets or likes we get, on our various statuses and that sort of thing, we need to check our hearts because the only validation that we need is that time with the Lord. It's an end in itself. It's a closed loop. Another takeaway is that a private one-to-one prayer life with the Lord is essential for the believer. This is how Jesus is telling us to pray. A public prayer life should be an overflow from your private prayer life. If our prayer life is primarily public, then we should examine our hearts and just go meet with the Lord. We should make it, make, make it a discipline, make a point to do that. This is what Jesus is saying in these verses. Another thing that the hypocrites are not doing is they're not treating this like a relationship, a father-to-child relationship. When you put on a show for other people, how, how is that? How is that relating to your father in a pure way? It's not. So we have to see ourselves as meeting with the father. And when we do that, we won't, we won't be tempted to put on a show for other people. So that's the first lesson of kingdom prayer, is that our intent is to connect with God alone. We're not putting on a show for people. The second lesson is in verses 7 and 8. And that says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So what is the intent of the Gentiles in verse 7? They're heaping up empty phrases. They're praying with so many words. And it's unnecessary. That's what Jesus is saying. What is their intent? Their intent is to control their deity. You know, these could be pagans, that this is a pagan way of praying, that they're trying to control their deity like some cosmic slot machine. If I say this prayer this many times, uh, you know, maybe he'll answer me then. That, that, kind, of, that kind of thing. It's, their intent is control. It's, it's a form of superstition almost. You see, it's, again, sidestepping the father-child relationship. That is not how a perfect father and a trusting child deal with each other. And I think this is easier than we think to creep in in our lives. And I know an example from my life 
trying to, at different times, trying to integrate uh, Psalm 23 into my day, whether it's reciting it a certain amount of times or when I do certain things just to keep my mind filled with those truths. There have been times when I walk out the door and I realize I I haven't said it, and immediately my mind is just like, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in group. You know, just mechanically, mechanically saying this prayer to get it over with, to, almost to like check it off of a list. And that is mechanical, weird control superstition, almost. The reason that I want to recite that prayer at intervals and integrate it into my life is that those are intentional times that I can spend with the Lord during the day. It's not to check it off a list, and I think it's easy for us to, to get there for some reason, just because we want to get things done. So we don't pray to flip a switch in the mind of God that he might favor us. He already favors us. That is how a father loves a child perfectly. So Jesus' counterexample here In verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This can be confusing, I think. Jesus is not saying that there's no point in asking God things because He already knows what we're going to say. It's not, it doesn't work like that. We have to take that relationship into consideration. And the big issue here, the intent that this is correcting, is that the pagans have to act like their gods are uninformed about their situation. We don't have to act like God is uninformed about our situation. The pagans pray from a sense of fear and distrust. So, of course, they would try everything they can do in their actions to control their deity because they don't really know him. But we pray from a sense of love, of trust, and of personal relationship. We make our request to the Lord, and then we trust in his plan. We know that we're heard, and then we know that he'll do what's best for us. That is the way that kingdom prayer works. We cannot miss that thread of knowing that is in in our relationship with the Lord. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and all the more reason to pour our hearts out to him. That's how a relationship works. You pour your heart out to the people that know you best. Think of a, a hungry child approaching his parent. The good parent knows when that child needs to eat. The good parent knows what to, what to feed the kid, and he's probably got it already ready. But the child still says he's hungry. And it just works well like that. Because the child has to ask doesn't mean doesn't take anything away from the relationship. It's actually how it's supposed to work. So we have to see ourselves in that kind of relationship with the Lord. So I think there is a a fine, fine example of this uh, in the Gospels. And that is Jesus' prayer in the garden. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he's suffering before going to the cross. He says a simple prayer of knowing and relationship. And we don't have to turn there, but what he says is, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. One of the most 
painful, brutal prayers ever prayed in human history. And Jesus is just saying, let this cup pass from me. Because he knows that God already knows his suffering. He knows that God is already so close. And yet he makes his request to the Father and trusts in his will. It's that simple. And that's the way that kingdom prayer works. We never see ourselves with God outside of the father-child relationship. So we filter all of our thoughts on prayer through it. He knows us and he loves us and we can trust him. If we're trying to control him with our actions, we're not trusting him. So we don't act like the pagans in that way. And of course, Jesus isn't telling us not to pray repetitively. He's not telling us not to memorize prayers. He's saying, look at the heart you're doing it with. Are you trying to control God? It's all about the intent. So, that's the second lesson on kingdom prayer that Jesus gives us, that our Father is not uninformed about our situation. So moving on to the next large section of this passage, uh, actually the Lord's Prayer that he gives us. So I'm going to go ahead and read verses uh, 9 through 15 for us. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think already looking at this prayer through the lens of a father-child relationship is useful to us. I think it can add new depths to it. This is a very common prayer, maybe too common, maybe too cliche for us sometimes. Um, but there's so much depth in it. There's two things I want us to notice right, right offhand. The first is that there's a progression in this prayer. Verses 9 through 11, the first three, or actually verses 9 and 10, the first three uh, petitions that that are made to the Lord. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Those three are all about God's glory. They all focus on the Lord, and they're first. And there's a reason for that. The second three, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. These are about our needs in relation to the Father. So we can't miss that the way Jesus tells us to pray is to first ask that God be glorified and ask that God's plan be put into action perfectly. That's number one. The second thing we should notice is Jesus uses words like our and us to, he's, he's using these collective community words. So this isn't only a personal prayer. He's giving it to his disciples and the people around him. So we don't see this prayer in isolation from community. This is as a community prayer as much as it is a personal prayer. So I want to kind of walk through it fairly quickly and and make sure we understand what Jesus is trying to say here. So verse 9, pray then like this. Immediately we can stop there and notice that he's saying pray like this. This is, again, a model prayer. This is more of a personal prayer framework than it is a liturgy, though it, of course, can be prayed, prayed verbatim and is very useful that way. This is more of a a model that can be adapted. 
One way of looking at this, a useful illustration, I think, is to, to consider a child learning how to write, developing his handwriting. At first, he follows the lines, he follows the dotted lines on paper, and all the kids' handwriting looks generally the same. Eventually, the lines are taken away, and it still kind of looks the same, but as the years go on, the child's handwriting gains a, a personal touch and a personal flavor that the people that know him can recognize, oh, this is definitely this person's handwriting. And yet, it retains the truth, meaning it retains what letters are, and people can read it. So I think we can first apply this definitely to the Lord's Prayer, that we start in a very general way, and we learn to pray this with Jesus. This is a prayer that teaches us how to pray. And, and second... Uh, we're able to then adapt it to where we are with the Lord and our understanding of things and our, our needs and our requests. And we'll talk about, a little bit about that more later. But I think that same handwriting principle you can apply to any discipline. Um, so I think that's important. Pray then like this. Uh, it's not a mere, a mere liturgy. Next, hallowed be thy name. Or, sorry, our Father in heaven. Uh, immediately, Jesus invokes the father-child relationship. If you look through the Gospels at the way Jesus prayed, you'll see him constantly referring to God as Father. And he won us the ability to do that. We have to see ourselves in this relationship. So it's consistent with what we've been talking about so far, that he is the perfect father, and we are the trusting child, making simple requests. So we see prayer that way. We see this prayer that way. So there's that intimacy there, and then our Father in heaven, which is easy to think about as that he's maybe far away, or he's some, like, a majestic king in his kingdom in heaven, but at the same, and while that's useful, that we get to be intimate with that kind of king, uh, it also means that he's closer to us than we could ever imagine, that he permeates all of reality in a way that we can't understand, and he knows us better than anyone else knows us. So while he is in heaven, he is also closer, closer than we can imagine. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed simply means I want, I want your name to be revered and treasured more than any other. I want it to be exalted, sanctified, set apart. Um, hallowed be our name, Lord. I want your name to be recognized for what it is. So, moving on to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. We want the kingdom, which is something we talk about a lot around here. Um, and the kingdom of God is where, where the things that God wants to happen, happen perfectly. It's where his will is done perfectly. So, Father, we want the kingdom to come, to advance in all areas, including our lives that we want things around us to be sanctified and to look like heaven. We know that he is making all things new and that we know he is redeeming all things. So we're asking for that to continue, for that to happen. Next he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, this is similar, but this is a chance for us to acknowledge that his will is the best will the best will for us, the best will for everyone else. 
So we ask that his will be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. And there's something interesting to notice, I think, about the last, or these first three petitions. They're very, they're very interconnected. If God's will is being done, then his kingdom is coming. And if his kingdom is coming, then his name is being hallowed. So it's simple in that way, but you can kind of nuance it for depth. And it, and it is a very, a very deep thing. So this is the first three petitions where we glorify God and we ask for God to be glorified. The next set start in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. So by bread, Jesus means give us what we need to survive. Give us the physical provision to sustain these bodies. And it's interesting how he puts it. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say give us this week our daily bread or give us a year's worth of daily bread. That'd be nice. Um, But he says give us this day our daily bread. And that is communicating a trust. We have a trust in God to give us what we need just for today. And we trust in his moderation that he will give us exactly what what we need for one day. That also implies kind of a a daily prayer in this way, which we'll talk about more. So he gives us what we need in his moderation just for the day, and that helps us not to put our security in the things we've saved up. There's nothing wrong with with saving money. There's nothing wrong with, with having different provisions, but the second that we put our hope and our our faith and our security in those things to get us by day, day to day, then we've, we've crossed the line. And building this daily dependence on God for our provision is just very helpful to us. And we can see that ultimately God is the one that provides all things for us. And it helps us to look at the world in a different but more accurate way when we see all good things as coming from him. So verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then he adds 14 and 15 in relation to this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespass, their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This can be confusing. The first thing we need to say about this verse is that we are not asking for justification Justification is a big church word that's, that's saying that just to, that we're in right legal standing with God, that we are justified because of Christ's work on the cross. And that happened one time and for all to, to cover our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. So we're not asking uh, for a, a refill of that or, or something weird. That, that's completely covered. So what is, what is Jesus talking about then? He's talking about more of a restoration of personal relationship. Whenever we find sin in our lives and we choose something other than him, a lot of times we heap guilt on ourselves and it feels like we're putting distance between us and God. And this is a daily invitation to confess those things to him and realize that he is not far away from us. The way we should look at this is that God wants us to walk in the forgiveness that, has, that Jesus has already provided for us. 
So forgive us our debts. Let me walk in the truth that these things are covered and help me with them and change me in these ways because there's no distance between us and God. There's no weird period of penance or something like that. And then he says, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then he adds a similar thought in 14 and 15. It must be very important to Jesus that as much as we understand our forgiveness that we've received, we have to forgive others. That we should not, we should not withhold that from anyone because we have been so greatly blessed by this. How can we? Uh, and all at the same time, we acknowledge that God is helping us to forgive others and he's teaching us to forgive others. And it's all part of our sanctification process. So we don't want to hold things against each other because we have been forgiven so radically and so perfectly. How can we hold things against each other? So verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, this can be a little confusing. God does not lead us directly into into temptation. You think about the father-child relationship. He's a, he's a perfect father. He's not trying to tempt us to get, to, to get us to sin. However, he does allow trials and difficult things into our lives uh, for our good, according to his perfect will. And it's the trials and the difficult circumstances that lead us into temptation and reveal our weaknesses. So when we come to him and say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and the temptation and evil, those are kind of synonyms here. We know that the enemies of the Christian are, are the world, the flesh, and Satan. So this is kind of what we're talking about here. So we ask with a believing heart to be spared from all of these situations. And when trials do come, we trust that God has purpose in not sparing us from them, whether that be a trial that's a minute long, a week long, or a year long. We know that in his wisdom, he's not spared us, so there's something, there's something worth it at the end for us and for him. God does not promise a life of no difficult times, but instead he promises totally unbroken care and that he is enough for us in all, in all circumstances. And we should believe as we're praying this that he's already spared us for, from so much. You know, there's, I guess, no way to prove it. But why wouldn't we believe that our perfect Father is already sparing us from so much? We have to start seeing the world this way. So that's a quick run-through of the Lord's Prayer. I, w- I just want to make sure that we understand it before we go on. Uh, another big argument that I want to make is that in the kind of prayer that Jesus describes here, in view of the father-child relationship and in the secret place and all that kind of thing that he's been talking about, by praying in this way, we get to gain a glimpse of God's perspective. Think about a loving father that is consoling or teaching his child. Really what he's doing is allowing the child to learn from his perspective. So the way the father sees the world or this situation is the way that the child is learning to think and to see the world. And it's the same thing with God. 
We want his perspective. We acknowledge that his perspective is best. So C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Letters to Malcolm, uses an, an interesting analogy, I think, to talk about prayer in this way. And he says, imagine that for the Christian, the whole world is like a theater stage. Imagine you're in this play, that you're a character in a play, and that's what the whole world is. Everyone's playing these characters. And we're so into these characters uh, that it's all we know. This, this world is all we know. Um, so that is, the, that is the world outside of God. And he says that for the Christian, on this stage, when we enter into this kind of prayer, we start to get a glimpse of the fact that we are, or we become aware that you're on the stage. I'll, I'll explain that again. It's like the whole world is a stage, and we're all characters in this play. And when we come to God in prayer, we start to realize that there is a stage, and that there's more in the world than just this play. There's more to the world than this life that we've been living. Uh, because God's perspective is rooted outside of the world, and he can see beyond our lives and beyond all the things that we can see. And we start to realize that the world around us is not the ultimate reality. We start to realize that the kingdom of God is the ultimate reality because he is outside of the world and we have access to that, and that's how he's growing us. So when we enter into prayer, we get to get God's perspective and we get to see God for who he is more accurately. We get to see that he is a perfect, loving father, that, that cares for us perfectly. We get to see the world for what it is, which is that it is not the ultimate reality. God's kingdom and God himself are the ultimate reality. And we get to see ourselves for who we really are, and that's through God's eyes. And this is key, that we learn to see ourselves through God's eyes. And doing that allows us to adopt true narratives. We've talked a lot about narratives and it simply means something you believe, a narrative. So we adopt these, these true narratives about God. We see ourselves through his eyes. We constantly are reminded that we're under the care of a perfect father, a perfect shepherd, um, that he loves us perfectly. We're constantly reminded that we only need to come, with him, come to him simply uh, with our request, we don't need to put on a show. We don't need to try to convince him of anything that we can trust his will. So we fill our minds with these narratives as we spend time with him in this kind of prayer. So imagine, like how do we implement this? Imagine, imagine entering into this kind of prayer, the Lord's Prayer specifically, but in full view of the father-child relationship and praying in secret and all that. Imagine entering into that with the Lord every morning. We enter, that, we enter into it before the narratives of the world and the flesh and the enemy enter our minds. We make a priority to meet with God first thing. What can this do for us? Well, we're thinking his thoughts and we're seeing ourselves through his eyes. And before we get to work, 
uh, before we think about whether we're good at our job or we're not good at our job, and that tries to define us. Or I'm in a good place in my life right now, or I'm not in a good place where I want to be in my life right now. Or before we go to school, or before we turn on the TV or listen to music and start to get narratives from that, before we look in the mirror and decide whether or not we're attractive. The first thing we do, we meet with God and we ask Him, Father, won't you fill my mind with your truth? And we do this by praying the Lord's Prayer. This is one approach to it. We train ourselves. And the trying versus training analogy is very, is very important here. We do this little by little and we develop habits. We want to have God's perspective at all times and we want to be thinking about the kingdom. We do that little by little by entering into this kind of prayer with the Lord. So what could this actually look like in our mornings, throughout our days? I want to walk through the Lord's Prayer one more time, uh, just in full view of everything we've talked about, especially that father-child relationship and trying to gain his perspective. What could it be like to be with God in this way at regular intervals, trying, just asking him, Father, fill my mind with your truth, and let's walk together today. Maybe we would say, Father, help me to focus as I meet with you in this time. Lord, make this prayer time fruitful. And then we go to the Lord's Prayer and we say, Our Father in heaven, our Father who loves us perfectly, our Father who knows us better than anyone, our Father who will be with us all throughout the day, our Father who is so near, hallowed be your name, Lord. May your name be made great among all the peoples, God, and especially in my life. I want your name to be, to get what it deserves and for it to be recognized as it should be. May your kingdom come. Father, I want your kingdom to appear in my life in places where I don't even realize it needs to be. God, I want to look at things and look at kingdom opportunities for today. And surely when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we'll think of people that we can intercede for. We'll think of people who are just in bondage to sin. And we'll say, Father, may your kingdom come in their life. And we'll think of people who are just growing, growing so much in the Lord. And we'll say, Father, may your kingdom continue to come in their life. And we'll think about the brutal things we see on the news. And we'll be like, Father, may your kingdom come there. And we're all the time acknowledging that God's kingdom is the ultimate reality and that we want to walk in such a way that we see it in everything. And may your will be done. Father, I want my will to conform perfectly to your will today. That as I walk at work and at school and whatever it may be, I want to be doing what you would do if you lived my life. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in my life and in all the lives around me, Father. And then we might say, God, give us our daily bread. Give me what I need to serve you well today, Father. Sustain me and help me to realize that ultimately you provide all good things for me. Help me not to put my hope in the things I've saved up. Help me to just recognize that you provide for me perfectly, Lord. Grow me in that. And forgive us our debts. Father, I know that I have weaknesses and that I've fallen short in some things in the last day, Lord, and I confess those to you now. 
and we would confess these things in the full hope that God is going to change us and that he's working with us on those. But most of all, we say, Father, help me to walk in the truth of your forgiveness for me, that there is never any distance between us and that you are always accessible to me. And Father, for the people that I'm having trouble forgiving, Lord, help me to forgive them. This person and this person and this situation, Lord, I don't want to hold a grudge against people. I don't want to hold things against people. Come into my life in this way and change things. I need your help to forgive people. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that, Father, we acknowledge our weakness and that we know some situations may come today that we have an opportunity to step into that will test us, that will expose our weakness, and we'll be tempted to choose sin. And, Father, spare me from those situations. I do not want the chance to sin. And when, I, when I'm given the choice to walk into those situations or not, Father, give me the wisdom not to. But if they still come and I find myself there, Lord, I know that you will help me resist temptation and you will give me a way out. And help me to walk in that. Deliver us from evil. And Father, we know that these are truths that we get to fill our minds with. And Father, we want this to be on our minds all day. And if ever we detect that we're losing grip of the truth of God, if we're losing grip of the father-child relationship or of God's perspective, if we're losing grip, Father, motivate us to get in back into that secret place in our hearts and meditate on you so we can get right back there. I think that's what it means to be a light to the world. I think that's what it means for us to meditate on his truth and be a force for good in the world because there is no, there's no greater power. That these are living words of Jesus that he gives us that we can dwell on throughout the whole day. And this is how, this is how people are going to see Christ in us if we fill our minds with his truth and we see the world as he does. So I hope this has given you an idea or, an, or a hope for what you can implement in your own life, a new depth to see the Lord's Prayer in. At some level, uh, this sounds so good in theory, and it sounds so good in our minds, but at some level we have to see the life that Jesus lived, and we have to see what he's told us to do, and we have to just try to do it. This isn't some weird way of testing God. This is putting his wise words into practice and trusting him that it will bear fruit. And believe me, we can trust him in that. It will bear fruit because he blesses his own ideas. So my challenge to you is find where in your life this can fit if it's not there already. And that we will come to the Lord with this prayer, personalizing it as we're led to, going slowly with each step, realizing that we need to fill our mind with this truth before we go on. And we see our days through this and we see our whole lives through this. And then before we know it, we're changing and we're changing and we're changing. And then the things we struggle with, they just don't seem so difficult anymore because he's sanctifying us. And I believe that this is, this is what Jesus is trying to get us to integrate in our lives with this passage. He's teaching us how to pray, and he gives us this beautiful prayer to implement. So I hope this has been helpful. I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, I thank you that we get to pray to you at all. Father, I thank you for 
the way you sent your son to save us, Lord, and to open up a way for this relationship to you. God, I ask that as we reflect on these things and as we go out from this place and through our weeks, that we would just be motivated to meet with you in that secret place, that we would meet with you in prayer, God, in new and vibrant ways that change our lives because that is what you want to do. Father, we know that we can't do this alone and we need your help. So I ask that you would help us. And as we sing here, God, I just pray that you would meet us uh, just in new and wonderful ways, God, as we try to move these truths from our minds to our hearts, from the place where we just think about them to the place where we'll actually put them into practice. God, help us to trust you in all of this. Help us to gain your perspective and to truly see ourselves as trusting children before a perfect father. You will never let us down. I thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to go ahead and sing uh, two songs. And really, we didn't write a song about the Lord's Prayer or anything. We're just going to praise him for who he is, and we're going to celebrate who we are in Christ. Because as we do that, He's putting soil on the good seed. So I just ask that we really go for it in this time.